0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 27 open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, We've had a great opportunity these past few weeks to examine the cross and the terrible crucifixion of our Lord. We're getting closer and closer to the conclusion of our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and the cross is the place that Matthew has been taking us since we began our study in December of 2008. And we've discussed how that the last week of Jesus' life takes up almost one-fourth of the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew. And then a 24-hour period from the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, to the burial that we're going to talk about today, that 24-hour period takes up one-sixth of the narrative of Jesus' life. So that Martin Vincent said that if as much detail was paid to the rest of Jesus' life as was paid to this last week and this last 24-hour period, that it would take 180 volumes to contain it all, each of those volumes being as long as the Bible itself. And what that tells us is that it's impossible to bypass the cross of Christ. It's impossible for us to ignore his death, his burial, and his resurrection because if we leave that out of the preaching, if we don't talk about that, there is no reason for the Bible at all. There's no reason for us to come to church and have fellowship with one another. This is the whole thing, folks, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to leave the death of Christ and we're going to move on to the burial portion of the Lord and quite frankly what happened at the burial of Christ is no less spectacular in the way that God superintended it than all the rest that we saw in the very darkest day. Remember this was the dark day when God shut out the lights of heaven when Christ was crucified and the events of of the uh, of that darkness and of graves being opened of just the earthquake that happened the ripping of the veil in the temple the burial of Jesus Christ and what happened there is no less spectacular than what God had to do to make sure that everything worked according to his sovereign plan. So we come to the scriptures beginning in verse number 57 and the burial of Christ. And if you look there please, Matthew 27 verse number 57. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged ...the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth... ...and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation... The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch." go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. We thank you for this great story of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came to give his life as a ransom for sin. Lord, help us as we look into the story of the burials, begin this part that We will see how that your hand was upon this and how Jesus fulfilled all scriptures pertaining to him. And Lord, how by doing that, he became the savior of those who trust in him. Help us today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are three important elements in the gospel. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he began by saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And then he went on in verses 3 and 4, and he said, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There are two important parts of the gospel that we... Intensely concentrate on. We speak of the death of Christ, and for weeks we've been talking about that part of the gospel and the importance of it. We preach about the resurrection, and we know the resurrection is absolutely critical to our faith. Uh, it's so important that Paul says that there can be no faith without the resurrection of Christ. But the middle part, the burial, of Christ is the part that I think goes somewhat unnoticed in the emphasis of that's made of the other two and we don't really pay as much attention to the details of this burial service as Jesus was taken down from the cross and placed into the tomb we just assume that if Jesus was going to come out of the tomb if there's going to be a resurrection that he had to be put into the tomb And we don't really think much more about it than that. And so I wonder sometimes if Christians really think about all the things that God had to do to pinpoint the intricate details of what happened in the burial of Christ. Now what I'd like for you to do is to think about this as uh, we, we go into it in two sermons, the one today and then actually in two weeks we'll come back to it and talk about the other part. So we're going to talk about the burial of Jesus Christ, but actually before we get to that part and, and talk much about that, we do need to realize this, that Jesus did in fact die. Now you might not think that there is much question about that, that we don't need to ask about that, But when you have to deal with a supernatural resurrection, something that no one has ever seen before, that Christ came out of the tomb under his own power, then you can be sure that there's going to be all kinds of ways that people try to explain away the fact that there was a resurrection. Now the time that Jesus spent on the cross in some ways makes his death suspect. And that's because he was only there for six hours. Now to you and me... That would seem like a torturous lifetime to think that anybody could spend that much time dying on a cross. But Jesus was dead within six hours, within six hours, and and that was not normal for a death of a crucifixion. Most of the time it lingered much longer, even sometimes it would be days that a person would hang on a cross before he would be dead. But we find in Mark chapter 15 that a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea came after six hours and he came to ask for the body of Jesus. He went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and when he talked with him, Pilate was simply amazed and Pilate marveled at the fact that Jesus was already dead. And so what he did was to send a soldier to confirm it just to make sure And that's the thing that we have to understand very importantly. Right at the very first, there has to be, this is one on your outline, number one, that there was a sure death. Absolutely, Jesus died when he was on the cross. And if we're to believe that three days later, there's going to be a miraculous resurrection, then we have to be sure that Jesus was dead. And we'll talk about all the lies that were told and fanciful stories that were made up to explain it later. But the fact that Jesus was really dead is something that needs to be shown. I'd like you to turn if you would to John chapter 19 where we see the verification of his death and we can never question that by some slight of the hand or some trick that somebody did that uh, they claimed that Jesus was dead and that set him up for a fake resurrection. Now the fact of his death was a public spectacle because you know there were many that watched him as he died Uh, it couldn't have been more public than it was because the time was passover jerusalem was filled with thousands of visitors from all over the world and god gave the world a record to see witnesses to tell that jesus was in fact dead and and word of mouth spread throughout all the roman empire as these people went back to their different homes So in John chapter 19, beginning at verse number 30, it says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, and of course this is when he was on the cross, when he had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs." But one of the soldiers, with a spear, pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. Well, the timing of the crucifixion, rather, was very critical. Because immediately following it was the observance of Passover. And this one was doubly important because the next day was a Sabbath observance. Now you remember that crucifying Jesus near this particular time was a real problem for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, because there was a lot of stress that was put on them to try to get everything done with the trial and all the preparations that had to be made for the Passover. To try and do all of that at the same time was a very difficult thing for them to do. What they had preferred to do was to wait to another time, wait till Passover is over, get all of that out of the way, and then they'll take time to crucify Jesus. But this was something that had to happen in God's timing. It had to work out that Jesus would be crucified at the exact time that the Passover lambs were being killed in Jerusalem. And so God overdid all of the Pharisees' plans, all the Jewish leaders' plans. He overruled all of that. And Jesus was to die at the exact time that God said that he would die. Well, since Jesus was on the cross and the next day is the Passover observance, the Jewish leaders wanted those bodies, those men, to be removed from the cross because to leave them hanging there through the Passover would have been defilement. It was desecration to leave bodies on the cross through the Passover. And I really think it's strange that they should even have cared about that at all because they had already violated so many of their laws. Uh, they were poised to even make a mockery of many more. But they wanted those men down from the crosses. They, they weren't dead except for Jesus. And they didn't know that Jesus was going to die that quickly. And so they asked Pilate to have the legs of those men broken to hasten their death so that they could take them down from the cross. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but when the Bible talks about them breaking the legs of prisoners, it wasn't like snapping a tibia with a little twist or something on that order. I mean, it would be bad to do that. This isn't a twist and a snap. Now what they would do is they would take a club, and with all the force that they could swing that club, they would bring it down across the shins and the fibula, and they would crush the bones in the legs. I mean what they did, they pulverized the bones in the legs so that any hope that the legs could be used to push up, to give some support to the body would be taken away. The bones were completely splintered and the body would hang there limp, suspended by the nails that were driven through the wrist. And the nails were still in the feet. And so uh, a man could not lift up his feet just a little bit to take the pressure off those shattered bones that were in his legs. Now the Romans didn't really want to do that. They didn't want to break the legs of the prisoners. What they preferred to do was to leave them on the cross as long as they could be there, to let them suffer as long as they could. They didn't care if birds came and plucked out their eyes as they hung there. They didn't care if wild animals and dogs that roamed the streets would jump up and grab the feet and the legs and bite them and tear off flesh. That was perfectly acceptable to the Romans. They didn't like to hasten the death. Oh, you think that if they needed to hurry with this, why they wouldn't just jab a spear into a a man's heart and let him bleed out. And the reason that they didn't do that, because that was too fast. Death was too simple if they did it that way. And so they took the clubs as a last effort to give a person as much pain as they possibly could. When those soldiers came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. It wasn't worth the effort to swing the club to break his legs, but lest there be any mistake that he was actually dead, there was a soldier who took a spear and he shoved it up through his side and punctured his heart. And the scripture says there came out blood and water. So his death was sure. We don't have any doubt about that. He was dead. The crowd saw it. Soldiers saw it. Later it was confirmed by a soldier that Pilate sent, just to make sure before he would release the body. So we have no doubt that the body that went into the tomb was dead. And the body that came out of the tomb had been dead. Now before I leave this particular part, I, I do want to note still another hypocrisy of the leaders of the Jews. They, they were trying to preserve the sanctity of the Sabbath by getting the bodies down from the crosses. But even as they were doing that... They were defiling themselves by making an appearance before Pilate. Uh, You remember that just hours before, they wouldn't even dare to enter into the judgment hall of Pilate for this very reason. It would defile them for the Passover. But here they don't actually care, and this is just typical of the selective enforcement of their religious laws. They did what they wanted when it suited them. They, they did exactly what they wanted, whenever they wanted. They didn't really worry about these kinds of things. So what they could do, what these leaders could do, is they could fake trials, they could lie with ease, they could pay out blood money, they could murder, they can approach Pilate for his help. But at the same time, they don't want to desecrate the Sabbath by leaving the bodies on the cross. Well, now we come to our text verses in verse number 57, and we know that Jesus is dead for sure, And now, the body has to be disposed of. Jesus was crucified as a criminal, but is his body going to be treated like a common criminal? Now, the second thing that we would note today is a secret disciple. Let's talk about this secret disciple. Verse number 57, "...when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple." And he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. There was a rich man by the name of Joseph, and he came to ask for the body of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. In John chapter 19, verse 38, John reports, he was a secret disciple. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Now, here here was a man who was a fearful disciple. He believed, but he was afraid that others would find out. And he was afraid because he was a member of the Jewish ruling authority. He had a seat on the Sanhedrin, that very same group of men who had tried Jesus and condemned him to death. He's one of those that put Jesus through a mock trial and said, This man needs to die on a cross. Now, you look for a moment in Luke chapter 23, and the Bible gives a description of him, and it's a quite interesting one because it describes him as a believer that had some great characteristics that were not typical of the, of the normal men, the men that were on that Jewish court. And in Luke 23, in verse number 50, it says, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. There it says that he was a counselor, That's a special term that indicates that he had a seat on the court. And it said that he didn't consent to the death of Jesus. So either he was a no vote when it came time to decide whether Jesus would be put to death. Maybe he was a no vote. Maybe he was a no show. Maybe he wasn't present when that took place. If you remember, they very hastily had to put together a few members of the court to get a quorum in their clandestine nighttime meeting. So perhaps Joseph wasn't there. But then the Bible also says that he was a just man and he was a good man. And that's something that you don't see coupled with descriptions of people that were on that Jewish Sanhedrin. Not even the presiding member, the one who is the high priest, is called a just man and a good man. And then the Bible says that he was a man who looked for the kingdom of God. And that's a very special term that's used in the Bible to indicate that here was a man who was really looking for the things of God to happen, really looking for the Messiah, really trusting God that he was going to send that promised one that he said that he would send. He was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. And so he was one of those honest men. A man like you would find at the birth of Jesus. A man like like Simeon who was there and met Jesus at the temple on the day that he was circumcised and brought there for for that dedication. And he was a man like Zacharias who was John the Baptist's father. He was a good man. He was a just man. And even a man like John the Baptist himself. But Joseph of Arimathea was a good man, a just man, and... He was looking for the kingdom of God, but he had just become a believer in Jesus Christ. When he heard the teachings of Jesus, he did believe, but the faith that he had was still shaky. He was afraid to step out and declare that he was a believer for fear that he would be thrown out of the synagogue. I mean, here, when he admits that he's a follower of Christ, that means the loss of all prestige and privileges. And so I think that shows he was a man that had an imperfect faith. That is, I think it's possible for a person not to understand everything perfectly about Christ. But he did know enough to be a believer. And I think it also shows us that a person who is not faithful at first, a person who says he is a believer in Christ and he's afraid at first to declare his belief at some time or another, that is exactly what he's going to do. That a fearful disciple, a disciple that holds back, is not going to stay that way forever. A real believer in Jesus Christ at some time is going to step forward and he will make his faith known. Now in Joseph's case, he made his faith known when he bravely approached Pilate and asked for the body. At that point, he was ready to renounce everything. At the moment that he went to Pilate, that meant that he had abandoned his old way of life, that he was done with it, because this was going to do nothing other than to accelerate his fall from grace with the Jewish leaders. And I don't know exactly why he did it. Maybe God showed him the significance of that torn veil. you remember how we talked about that? And maybe he saw that and God showed him That Jewry, the religion of the Jews, it's over. The practices of the Jews, it's over. Sacrifices are over. All the observances that they did, they're over. And so maybe he thought, there's no sense holding on to this any longer. Now is the time to come out and proclaim that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. He showed he wasn't holding on to any of the ceremonial laws any longer because he went to see Pilate and he was going to handle that body and that would be a defilement of the Passover laws. But he didn't care. He was done hiding. He was done pretending, done with the old life. And I'll tell you this, if you claim to know Christ and you never come to that particular place that you show others that your faith is real then you're not really a disciple of Jesus. Secret disciples will not stay secret disciples. At some point, the Holy Spirit is going to move your heart beyond that, and you're going to make it known that you trust Christ, you believe in Him. And if you never make a stand for Christ, then you're not a true believer in Him. You're not a true disciple. Now we think about this, and we see how this turnaround in this man's uh, actions here is a stark contrast... those 11 men that walked with Jesus for three years, the first big question we have to ask is where were they? Why weren't they, why weren't they in Pilate's judgment hall asking for the body of Jesus? Why is Joseph of Arimathea, a man that at this point nobody even knows that he's a believer, why is that man there asking For the body of Jesus. Well there's a couple of reasons for it. The first one would be cowardice. Let's go back to verses 55 and 56. We haven't actually talked about these yet. But in verses 55 and 56 we find two verses that are very condemning for the 11 disciples that Jesus knew best. It says, And many women were there beholding afar off which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Who was at the cross? Was Peter there? No. Was James there? No. Was Matthew there? No. John made an appearance for a brief time, but not for very long, so he wasn't there all All of them were gone. They all ran away. They were all hiding because of their fear. And so they actually became secret disciples because they'd given up hope when they saw that Jesus was on the cross. So who's there at the cross? Women. Women. They went and they followed him. They watched him die. Mary Magdalene, one who had devils that was cast out of her. Mary, the wife of Cleophas, who was the mother of James the Less, one of the disciples. And Salome, who was the mother of James and John, she was there. These are women that were grateful for what Christ had done. And there are no signs of these big brave disciples at the crucifixion of Christ. And so do you know what happened at the resurrection? Who was it that Jesus appeared to first? It was to these women. He appeared to women first, and they're the ones that took the message back to the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now here is a man, Joseph of Arimathea, who had his coming out moment as a disciple of Jesus. The fear was gone, and there are the disciples of Jesus that are headed back in. They've got their heads in in a hole somewhere because they're afraid... After Jesus was crucified, afraid what would happen to them. We think about Peter and his bravery. Oh, he was so brave as he was in the garden as he was going to protect Jesus. But remember just a few hours later at the trial of Jesus, some little lady, some little girl said he was a disciple of Jesus and he swore, he cursed and he said, I am not. His bravery turned into fear. So the first reason that Joseph was there was because the disciples were not going to do it. They didn't come for the body. They didn't want the body. And you think how unlike that was of the disciples of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist was beheaded and who came and got his body? It was his disciples. And they took care of him and he took that body and they buried it. But Jesus' disciples deserted him, even even his body. They wanted nothing to do with the dead body because of their fear. But there is a second reason, and this one is... Part of God's providential plan. And that is if those disciples wanted the body, they couldn't have gotten it. Pilate was not disposed to give the body to that ragtag bunch. Luke said that Joseph had to beg for the body. He had no right to it. And Pilate was not disposed to give the body to anybody. So why did he give the body to Joseph? Who was Joseph? Well, he was a rich man, the scripture says. He was a very notable man. He was on the court of the Sanhedrin. And the only reason that he could get an audience with Pilate to even ask about the body in the first place is because of his position. Now probably, Pilate was not disposed to help the members of the Sanhedrin because they're the same ones that blackmailed him into crucifying Jesus. But Pilate's still a very pragmatic man. And as you look at it, do you think that Joseph just shows up in the story by accident? Do you think that there is a secret disciple that is on the council of the Jews, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and that comes by accident? Oh, this is the providential hand of God. God wanted the body. And I'll show you in just a few minutes why God wanted the body. Maybe we'll get to some of that today, maybe more next time. But nobody could get their hands on this body but a man like Joseph. You know, if you think the Bible is not a miraculous book, a book that's totally beyond anything that you've ever read before that you've seen anywhere, I'm sorry, but you're a fool. If you can't see how miraculous the Bible is, Mina and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, and I think she was telling me about a relative that hers had said that, that asked her, how do you know that the Bible is true? And Mina explained to her that when you read it, You just know there's something very special about it. When the Holy Spirit begins to open up your understanding to it and you see all of these little nuances and all the little details that all come together that work into the big picture, you can't help but think this is the inspired Word of God. Oh, but people say, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible is true. And you say to them, have you read it? And they say, no. Well, that's a great discovery, Einstein. I mean, that's a real valuable opinion that you've got. We need more geniuses like that, that have determined things aren't true without even investigating. Read it. Let it speak to your mind. Study it. Get into it thoroughly. Get someone to explain it if you must. Listen to sermons. Listen to preachers who have read it. And then decide if the Bible is true. How could you ever say that something is true if you've never read it or even studied it? So here is Joseph of Arimathea who came. He's one on the Jewish council and he came. Luke said that he was a man from a city of the Jews and we don't know exactly where it was because Arimathea doesn't exist any longer. But it was a Jewish city and it was close by, which is very important. It wasn't in Galilee because Galilee is referred to as the Galilee of the Gentiles. He is a man from a Jewish city close by Jerusalem, which is very important, I say, for the next point that we want to make. And that has to do with the tomb. And we'll talk about that tomb uh, in a little while. Now let's see, thirdly, a scriptural fulfillment. What is it that uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, Jesus was buried according to the scriptures. His death on the cross was a criminal's death. As far as Pilate and the Jews and the soldiers and the crowd thought, he was a criminal, at least he's a criminal to some degree. And what happens to the bodies of crucified criminals? Well, sometimes they didn't even remove them from the cross. As I mentioned before, the Romans didn't care if buzzards came and plucked out their eyes. They didn't care if they picked at the bodies and devoured them like roadkill. They didn't care if wild animals gnawed at the feet and jumped up to tear away the body parts. Rome's okay with that. It's an object lesson for them. This is what happens when you defy Rome. So whenever they did take the bodies down or whatever was left of them, what they would do is take up them and throw them into a mass grave. Sometimes they tossed them over into the Valley of Hinnom and that was the garbage dump for Jerusalem and the bodies would be burned up. But that can't happen to Jesus' body. Not according to the scriptures. There's not going to be a mass grave for him. His body can't be destroyed as carrion. It can't be burned into a, or thrown into a fire and burned up. It can't be mingled with rotting, other rotting bodies. So how is God going to prevent that? How, how is Jesus' body going to be treated in a different way? How, how is it not to be disposed of as a common criminal? His body must be uh, treated differently than two thieves that were crucified with him. How is that going to happen? Joseph of Arimathea. That's how God's going to bring it about. By a Christian who is on the Jewish council, a secret disciple, a plant on the Jewish council who has enough clout to get the body released to him. A coward, a coward comes to... Bravery, courage in his faith at exactly the right time in order to get his hands on the body. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53 for a moment. This is that great chapter about. Jehovah's Suffering Servant. It's about the millennial kingdom when the Jews will recognize that Christ is the king. They're going to look back on all of these miraculous events and they'll see what they did to him. And then the Bible says they will turn en masse to him in salvation. And notice what Isaiah wrote in the uh, ninth verse. Isaiah 53 verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He made his grave with the wicked. Well, that actually means that his death was with criminals, and he was with the rich in his death. Now that wording is a little bit confusing for us, so what we actually do is to reverse that to understand it, that he was with criminals in his death, and he was with the gray or with the rich in, his, in the grave. Now here are two things that don't match. Criminals are not buried. With the rich. But let's not forget that God is in the details. This is another of the marvelous prophecies of God's word that show that nothing about Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection was accidental. Let's go back to his death for just a minute. Why weren't his legs broken? Why, why did they pierce Jesus' side instead of breaking his legs like they did two men They were on either side of him. Why didn't they do that? John 19 verse 35 says, And he that saw it bear record. That's John. And his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that he might believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. In Psalm 34 verse 20, He keepeth all his bones Not one of them is broken. Zechariah 12 verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. How did those prophets know that? This is written hundreds of years before the crucifixion occurred. How did they know that his bones were not to be broken? How did they know that they would pierce his side rather than break his legs? How did they know that? You you can't say anything other. This is God. This is the superintending hand of God. This is history that's well attested. This is what happened. There's no mistaking this. Oh, folks, when we get to the the resurrection, we'll talk about the facts of the resurrection and how the resurrection itself has been attested by more facts and by more witnesses than any event of ancient history. God did this. Why wasn't he thrown into a mass grave? Because God said that he wouldn't be. He was buried with the rich. Joseph took him. And wouldn't you know this? As I said, this was important that... Joseph was a man from close by. He had a tomb that was close by. He would already purchased a tomb. It had already been hollowed out into the rock. It was all ready to receive him when he died. He was close by and that's where they took Jesus. Next time I'm going to tell you why it had to be that kind of a tomb. But for now, I want to finish today by speaking to you of another man. A man that's not mentioned in this text. I'd like you to go to John 19 if you would. Uh, In John 19, we have the same story with more details. And uh, in this passage, we see a person that we know quite well. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a little bit obscure to us. Not much is said in the Bible about him. But this other man is a part of the most important, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. John 19, verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pound weight. They took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now that second man is Nicodemus. He's the man that came to Jesus in the night in John chapter 3. There it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Do you see a problem here? I mean a problem for the Sanhedrin? Secret disciples on the Sanhedrin seem to be a problem here. John mentions Nicodemus because we've already met him in John 3. Did you ever wonder whether Nicodemus was saved after that encounter with Jesus in John 3? That's one of the most important texts of the Bible that we use for gospel presentations. And yet we come out of that text not knowing if Nicodemus actually believed. Did he become a Christian in John 3? Oh, he showed up at night because he was afraid uh, of being seen with Jesus. I mean, his problem was the same that Joseph had. Consorting with Jesus was automatic dismissal from the council. That's to be blackballed by the aristocracy. Did he get saved? Well, I think John 19 is our answer. He and Joseph were collaborators. Who knows how many whispers and secret glances went between Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they sat on the Jewish council as they discussed what was to be done with Jesus. Can you imagine them sitting there being believers in him and looking at each other as the discussion went on? But here are two secret disciples that at this point have now decided we're no longer going to be secret disciples. And so Nicodemus came to help with the body of Jesus. Do you know that the Bible never says how big a man that Jesus was? There aren't really any descriptions of Jesus. I mean, you see pictures of him. Those aren't Jesus. Whenever you see a picture of somebody that says this is Jesus, that's not Jesus. And it's not a part of my sermon today, but you ought not to have those pictures in the first place because it's idolatry. So we don't really know what size man that Jesus was. Um... I don't know how tall he was. I don't know how much he weighed. I think that he was probably a stout man. Uh, He walked a lot, you know. He got a lot of exercise, slept on the ground a lot. I think maybe he was a pretty heavy man, not fat, but but fairly heavy. Because we have heard, you know, with all that walking and exercise that he's got, of course we've heard that muscle weighs more than fat. And of course that's what I keep telling myself all the time. Um, The soldiers probably... Took the body down. But we don't know that for sure. Maybe they said, well, you want him. You get him down. Joseph had the orders from Pilate. The body had been released to him. It was his responsibility then to take care of the body, to haul it away. And a lifeless body is what? Dead weight. Exactly. No pun intended. A lifeless body is dead weight. So, wouldn't it help if you have two men to move the body? Did God think about things like that? Is that part of God's plan? That how's Joseph going to handle that body alone? And so, well, lo and behold, there's Nicodemus who shows up. He was a secret disciple. And he says, "I'll help you with that body. I'll help you take it away." So they had the body. They moved it. Nicodemus came to help, and he and Joseph began to pray to prepare the body for burial. Now the Jews didn't embalm bodies. They the bodies started to decompose very quickly, and they would begin to stink. And so what they did here is not usually done with a poor man. A poor man would not normally get this. This is for wealthy men. Nicodemus brought myrrh and aloes and sweet spices in order to anoint the body. And there wasn't just a little bit of it. Poor people might get a little, but they brought a lot of this stuff. The scripture says a hundred pounds weight of it. And Jesus got that because... He was to be buried with the rich. Does God not think of these things? He's to be buried with the rich. Verse number 40 says that they wound the body with linen clothes, and that was their custom. So what they did was they took strips of cloth, and they wrapped the body very carefully. They coated each layer with those spices, and that very careful wrapping becomes important later because it actually helps to prove the resurrection. When Jesus arose from the grave, Those grave clothes were still laying there undisturbed, just like a body had passed through them. And then do you remember those precious ladies that didn't run away like the men did? They were also there. They helped... They helped to prepare the body. Luke says that they were there for the burial and they helped with the to prepare, prepare the spices and the ointments. And all of that was done. They got all of this accomplished before the Sabbath day started. That's between 3 and 6 o'clock p.m. Sabbath starts at 6. Jesus died at 3. And they did all of this in three hours' time, getting that body prepared for burial. And then the Bible says that the women rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now here are these ladies that are still observing that part of the law, while the Jewish leaders, the guys that are, you know, the ones that are really supposed to be upholding the law, what were they doing? Well, they were on their way to Pilate during the period of the Passover celebration, or the Passover time, on the Sabbath, going over there to Pilate and saying to him, we need somebody to guard that tomb, so that somebody doesn't come and steal the body. So once again, they have defiled themselves by being the presence of a Gentile. Now all of this is marvelous, folks. The burial gets shuffled, gets shuffled away, lost in the shuffle, in the importance of the cross and the resurrection. But remember, there is a burial in there too. Now I have to tell you this before I let you go today. God did give us a complete picture of the gospel, didn't he? He gave it to us in the picture of baptism. There are three parts to baptism that correspond to the gospel. The death, of course, is implied because you don't bury people that aren't dead. Going under the water of baptism is a picture of burial. And coming back up out of the water is a picture of the resurrection. Now, we can't show that resurrection unless we actually do get people under the water. Now, I joke sometimes with people that are back here in the baptistry area and i And I say to them, "I promise you when I put you down, I will bring you back up and And I had Joel Kaczynski in there a few weeks ago, and I told him that, and he didn't know what to think because I just introduced something that he hadn't thought about yet, and uh he wasn't sure about it, but I haven't lost anybody, and I haven't kept anybody under for three days either. Uh, They always come back up. But I do hope this, that if I lose somebody in the baptistry, that God gives me the power to raise the dead. And uh, if you want to be baptized, I promise you right now, I'm not going to test the theory on you, okay? I won't do that. But it was necessary to bury Jesus just like God said. God takes care of all the details. He works everything out. And that's because he's God. And did you know that God cares about you too? He cares about details and what could be more significant than the people that he's going to bring to himself in faith of Jesus Christ. God's in all these details. God sent Jesus to save sinners. And the good news is, if you are a sinner, you can be saved. God doesn't save any other kind of people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your blessed word. We thank you for the story of the cross, and then as we come to the burial, we see that marvelous superintending hand as you take care of every detail to make it work out exactly the way that you said that it would. And when Jesus came out of that grave, we have to know it's the power of God. The resurrection is God Almighty at work, and that's why Jesus can be our Savior. We can have all of our trust in Him because there's never a detail that is left undone. Thank you, Lord, for salvation in Jesus Christ. Bring someone to belief. If there's a, even a secret disciple here today, may today be the day that they stand out and say, I'm going to stand for Jesus. I'm going to tell people about him. I'm going to let people know that I am a Christian. Lord, speak to someone's heart in that way today. And we give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen said a moment ago there's three parts to the gospel of christ death burial and resurrection you know most christians think that you have come to the crescendo of the gospel of matthew or the other gospel accounts when you reach the cross and christ died but you know that cross is not an end the high point comes at the resurrection none of us can be saved Even though there was a cross, none of us can be saved without the resurrection. Jesus went into the tomb. That's so important. And all the details of the tomb are so important. But we're going to see not long from now, He came out of the tomb. Now, I wonder what it's going to be like to preach Easter in July. But that's where we're going to end up. I I think we're going to finish, Matthew, probably the last week of August... And I'm already scared that we're going to get done uh, after so long a time. But thank God that Jesus went to the cross. Thank God that he was buried and that he arose again. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church